Hi, all. Welcome to another episode of Nutrition Pearls, the podcast from NASPIGN's Council for Pediatric Nutrition Professionals, or CPNP. I'm your host, Jen Smith, pediatric dietitian at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. Joining me today is my co-host, Bailey Koch, pediatric GI dietitian at GI Care for Kids in Atlanta, Georgia, and Atlanta Pediatric Nutrition. Hi, Bailey. How are you? Hi, Jen. I'm doing well. How's your summer going thus far, Bailey? We're a few weeks into it. Do you and your family do anything in the summer? Do you have any specific plans? We are just enjoying not having a six o'clock wake up call for the bus. For oh, school. yeah. My daughter is actually at three week sleepaway camp, You're which kidding. is nice. And my son, who's 13, is just enjoying staying up late and sleeping in and not having a schedule. So no big plans this summer. We're actually, we have a nice fall break in September when things aren't as crowded um, or as expensive. So we're going to head to the beach uh, at the end of September. Oh, that's nice. How do you pack for a three-week camp? Two really big Tupperware containers. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Sounds so, amazing though. Like, is this her yeah. first year doing that? No. So she's 10 and uh, she was supposed to go um, after first grade for just one week, mm-hmm. um, but COVID ruined that. So she went after second grade for one week and then loved it, wanted to go back for three weeks. So last summer she went three weeks. And then this summer she actually wanted to go five weeks, but told her she was a little too young for that. So she went back to three weeks. So I'm sure when she comes back this time, she's going to hit me up again for a, a five week camp. That is so, so it, amazing. My, yeah, my all girl camp. Oh, that's so great. My yeah. oldest son went on a camp last year that was like, I don't know, maybe it was two nights. Maybe it was three nights. It was the first time he'd ever went away. Like he is older than your daughter. And I was like, oh, I don't know if I can let him go. But he had an amazing time. Yeah, she's very independent and likes to kind of do her own thing and is very social. And But my son has no interest. I have tried. He has zero interest in going to camp. Yeah, everybody's different. um, Yeah, but it's a great camp. All girls camp in North Carolina. I went there as a kid. So oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so I'm happy she has the experience. Great. All right. Well, good. Well, it's a little bit of catch up on summer life. We just got back from the beach. So I am still trying to go through emails and all of that. It's been a challenge, oh, but we yeah. had beautiful weather and I got to extend time. your trip. Yes. Well, we were going to extend our trip. Actually, we decided not to. We had just such a fantastic vacation with family and and some of our extended family, and they were all going home, but we were kind of offered by the place that we were renting to extend. And so we had thought about it and tried to get all the kind of ducks in a row for, for taking some extended time off. And then kind of the last day of the beach, which was a great day, but my My kids were just spending like a little bit more time inside and they Mm. came out like kind of when all the other kids came out. So there's a lot of kids on this trip and my husband and I were like, hmm, I wonder if we extend our stay, but no one else is here. If the kids are going to be as like excited about it. So we talked to them and 
the youngest was ready to get back to our cats <laughs> and, the yeah. young, and the oldest was like, yeah, I, I think, I think I'd rather go home if no one else is going to be here. So it was fine because we had a perfect vacation and we just came home as planned. And so, you know, no big deal, but yeah, it was wonderful. So nice. Yeah. Thanks. Nice. All right. It's well, sunshine. yes, it is so good. And in Ohio, we don't get that all year long for sure. So it's nice to head South and get some of that nice vitamin D. Definitely. All right. Well, I can't, can't, can't wait for this interview. I have known our guest today for many years. We work together as uh, dietitians um, in Improved Care Now, which is a learning network that's dedicated to the improvement of care for patients with inflammatory bowel disease. We're both on the medical advisory board for ntforibd.org, which is a nonprofit website that provides nutrition education and resources for providers and patients who have IBD and providers who work with patients that have IBD. And I have so much respect for her. She is my go-to person for anything related to nutrition and IBD. And I'm talking about the infamous Kim Brawley. So a little bit more about Kim. She is a private practice dietitian specializing in inflammatory bowel diseases. She is the co-founder of a new web-based nutrition resource, Eats for IBD. She helps organizations build transformative IBD nutrition programs. She mentors uh, dietitian colleagues and guides patients of all ages and their families to thrive using research-backed nutrition interventions. She has partnered with organizations such as Children's Seattle Children's Hospital and the University of Pennsylvania and Improved Care Now. She strives to make nutrition approachable and effective for those living with IBD. So I cannot, cannot wait to talk with Kim. That sounds great. I'm excited about this as well. So let's get on to the show. All right. On to the show. Welcome, Kim. We have Kim Brawley here on the show today. How are you? I'm doing wonderful. Thank you guys for the invite. Oh, yeah. We're super excited to have you join us for Nutrition Pearls. And our first question is going to be a little bit of an icebreaker question. So we're asking each person to kind of choose their own icebreaker question just to get to know a little bit about you before we dive into the nutrition stuff. So, Kim, what did you want to be when you grew up? So when I was little, probably like three to six, I was determined to become a Disney princess singer. I loved singing oh. and had every song memorized. So that was my dream. But was there a princess in, in like a specific princess no. that if you were going to get that job at Disney that you wanted no, to No, I wanted to be on the movies, like probably like the equivalent oh, of Elsa, okay. oh. you know. Elsa now. Okay. That was my dream. Didn't want to be seen. Just sing. So I could sing the songs forever. Oh, just the background. Yeah. Yeah. That's so awesome. I just live vicariously through my kids that way. But <laughs> on a more serious note, Very though, good. during my junior year of high school, I traveled on exchange to Ecuador for the year. And I had the opportunity to work with underserved children with varying degrees of medical needs, many of whom were undernourished. And this was the experience, I think, that really instilled a desire for me to work in the healthcare field. Oh, that's great. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, what I'm a great experience. Yes, it was wonderful. Yeah. Well, good. Okay. Well, pivoting a little bit to get into our topic, what sparked your interest in working with patients with IBD specifically? This is always such a good question. 
during my, I think the, the first moment was during my dietetic internship at UC Davis, now, what, 12 years ago. I worked long-term on the GI unit because I, I loved GI. And there was an... Ad- was this adults, Kim? This was peds and adults. Yes. Okay. All right. So I got to do both for, for the year. And I worked with a young teenager with severe Crohn's disease and malnutrition. And like most people, I didn't know what inflammatory bowel disease was at the time, but I really got to know this young person and we had to go to bat for their nutrition and they ultimately needed surgery. But this experience really impacted me and gave me a compassion for those living with IBD. So I think that was the first moment. And then fast forward two years later, as part of the GI team at Seattle Children's Hospital, I was asked to partner with the multidisciplinary team and be the IBD dietitian. And I'm, I love working with teams. And this role involves both inpatient and outpatient nutrition care for kids with IBD. So I have the privilege of really following patients long term and sometimes knowing them, you know, since I could be inpatient and outpatient with them in any given day, knowing them very well. And that's a nice benefit. It's incredible. And through research and these experiences, I learned kind of the intricate role that nutrition plays in disease management and the large gap, knowledge gap of research that we still need to find out regarding IBD nutrition. Yeah, that's really true. Oh, that's great. Thanks for kind of setting the stage with your history yeah. on working with individuals with IBD. And most of our listeners will know what IBD is or inflammatory bowel disease, but could you just you know, real quick, briefly describe IBD and the different conditions that fall under the umbrella of inflammatory bowel disease. Yes, so I'll make it brief, but inflammatory bowel disease involves inflammation, just like the name says, within the bowels. The two most common types of IBD are Crohn's disease, which can occur along any part of the GI tract from the mouth to the anus. And then there's ulcerative colitis, which involves inflammation located to the colon or the large intestine. And IBD is caused by this overreactive immune response that leads to various symptoms. So kind of in a nutshell, I'd say those are the highlights. Yes. Kim, what type of patients do you feel are appropriate to utilize nutrition therapy as a treatment for IBD? And then kind of a quick follow-up, is there an ideal patient that you would say would be a good candidate for for treating with nutrition? Yes. Great question. I might have to have you repeat it. <laughs> but okay, I can do that. Part one, yeah. okay, which patients are appropriate for nutrition, right? Nutrition yeah. therapy. So I'll call out kind of the difference between using nutrition as treatment versus more symptom management or what I would say general nutrition because there, there are important differentiations that that I'll mention. And when I'm assessing or meeting with a patient or family um, to see if nutrition is appropriate for them, I kind of look at four components during my nutrition assessment. The first component or number one, I would say is based on their disease classification or phenotype. Just like a physician would say, you know, you're diagnosed with luminal Crohn's disease or mild disease, I recommend X medication. The research behind the various diet therapies points to certain disease classifications as well that may benefit. The second component I'd say is really looking at a patient or family's goals of care. So does a family want to try nutrition interventions, for example, before medication or maybe in conjunction with medication? 
So I'd be really looking for that to hear them say that. The third component involves patient preferences and their nutrition history. So for example, exclusive internal nutrition could be a great option based on a patient's disease classification and the family's goals of care, but maybe the kid or the individual can't really tolerate formula or they're like, I cannot drink seven shakes a day. Or maybe a patient is, uh, yeah, those are situations where like, okay, it's not a good fit. Another common example might be a patient is a selective eater who really dislikes whole Mm -hmm. foods. So I would not probably recommend a whole foods elimination diet in that moment for that given individual. And then the fourth component is what's the clinical indication of a nutrition therapy? Is it being used for induction therapy in addition or as adjunct to medication? Is it being used as a bridge to a medication? We know some medications take weeks to months to kick in. Nutrition therapy can be a great option in that case. And there is some excellent evidence coming out about EEN, for example, in the perioperative setting. So pre or post-surgery and the benefits of using it. Okay. Does that make sense? Kind of four Um, components of, and then part two, (laughs) part two of the question. Yeah, part two, (laughs) right? And so we'll get into later, like about how long, you know, it can take for the nutrition therapies to kick in. But as far as candidates that are, you know, a good candidate versus Mm -hmm. not a good candidate for using nutrition as a treatment, can you give our listeners an idea of who you would say, like as far as the phenotype, some of the things you were just mentioning would not be a good candidate and those that the research has shown it actually would be useful for. Yes. So kind of I'll switch them around. The ideal candidate, I would say, again, it's not, it's an ideal scenario, hypothetical. There are exceptions. Yes. (laughs) So we won't get into all the nuanced details, but kind of thinking of those four components, and I'll refer back to them, but number one, disease classification. We know that exclusive enteral nutrition or the liquid diet is a proven induction therapy for pediatric mild to moderate Crohn's disease. So it's the gold standard in Europe. We know it's a proven therapy. So a patient who has you know, mild to moderate Crohn's disease who's in need of induction therapy could be a great fit for EEN. Then leading into number two, depending on their goals of care. So is this a motivated family? Are they willing to change? And are they able, do they have the means to change their current eating habits? Can the individual drink shakes? Do they want to use it in conjunction with medicine or try it alone? And I think one aspect of kind of goals of care too is really, is the family flexible? Acknowledging that if nutrition doesn't work, then we need to reevaluate the plan because treating the inflammation is the most important part. And then that third component, I kind of tied into the second, you know, does a patient love whole foods? Could they drink a shake? That could kind of give me some inclination if they would be a great fit for nutrition therapy. And then lastly, what's the clinical indication? So are they in need of induction therapy, salvage therapy? Like nutrition therapy can be a great option if one is losing response to a medication. You know, adding that on, if they're willing to see if we can kind of expand the lifespan of the medication. I've seen that work numerous times for patients. Bridge, and then as I meant, to a new medication, and then also could we use it in the perioperative setting. So those would kind of be like ideal situations to pull nutrition therapy out as as a tool. Patients that I feel are part two, kind of not a good candidate, no absolutes again, (laughs) but Mm -hmm, there's always exceptions, never black and white, but generally speaking, those with complicated, severe disease 
may require a more aggressive kind of medical intervention out of the gate for induction mm-hmm. therapy. But that being said, if there are no viable medication options, or, you know, we're looking at, hey, this will take, you know, three months to kick in, it could be an option. But generally speaking, complicated. And in those, and in those patients... Yeah you could offer nutrition as an adjunct, exactly. right? Exactly. Like if they were motivated and that aligned with their family goals and all exactly. of that. So, And I, you know, I yeah. feel, you know, that's such a discussion between that shared decision-making between the team. Having the GI on board is key and willing to monitor labs and monitor yeah. closely. Are there certain phenotypes, for example, like if they have stricturing disease, or, you know, other, other examples that nutrition would not be a good option? Yes, there are. There is not a lot of research, so I'll touch on it briefly, but not a lot of research mm-hmm. for some nutrition therapies on complicated disease. Overall, I think most providers would say, you know, we need to use medication. That being said, there are case reports, and the literature is growing for, especially for EEN, the liquid diet we talked about, and mm-hmm. its uses in complicated disease. Again, case studies, mostly but sometimes we don't have a lot of options. So it can definitely be a great option to try or to add on. But yes, SCD, the IBD aid, there is no literature really in complex disease that it's the best option. There's not a lot of research also for a kind of not an ideal candidate. The research is not as robust in in those with ulcerative colitis or colonic disease. Mm -hmm. We haven't seen the same results. Again, literature is not as robust, but it wouldn't be necessarily my first option for an individual with, with UC. There are efforts, though, as we speak of more nutrition research coming out in UC. So it's an exciting area. Absolutely. If you're talking to a family about nutrition as a treatment, how do you introduce this to them and helping them help with the decision-making process? Another great question. I, I'd love your guys' insights, too, since you're, you're experts in IBD nutrition to kind of see what you do as well. But This has kind of changed for me now, especially working in private practice. Most patients Mm -hmm. I see have reviewed my website, which discusses nutrition therapy as a therapy. So they're coming in with some knowledge. They've oftentimes done their own research on nutrition therapy, but maybe need guidance on how to implement it or what the best fit would be for them. Or they're referred from their provider so we can hit the ground running with the best option to meet their needs. In the clinical setting, because I know most of our audience is working there, I had the privilege of meeting with every newly diagnosed IBD patient at our institution and was able to share nutrition options with every patient. So based on the responses kind of to those four components that I shared above or earlier and what was clinically going on with the patient, I would share best fit options and give my recommendation. Even if we did not like dive into nutrition therapy in detail, I pointed them Mm -hmm. to resources for more information, and we would discuss kind of general nutrition and IBD, depending where they were at. But I felt it was a disservice not to at least bring awareness that nutrition interventions exist, because you never know at what point someone may be interested in it down the road. And we know through research that the top question patients ask is, what do I eat? You know, what do I eat for my IBD? Yeah. 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 That's definitely my first question that I get. I think that my, I mean, there's an evolution to nutrition and IBD yes. for sure in the last like 10 yes. years. So things have really changed in, in the way that I approach my conversation, but I'm always thinking I could do a better job. Yeah. I wish I could. It's very difficult, I think, to explain yes. 
nutrition as treatment when there's so many different options. It's not like other conditions where you have to. Yeah. So it's it's a it's a longer conversation, mm-hmm. but I I try not to make it too cumbersome when I first am introducing the idea. But I always am feeling like it's a challenging thing to explain, mm-hmm. and I kind of say that like this is a challenge to explain. It's not like maybe something else that you've heard of where it's like yes, we know exactly what you should and shouldn't eat. It may be different for every person because many people their IBD is yeah. different and their treatment course is different, and so it would make sense that maybe the ideal diet is a little bit different, yeah. and then we just don't have that exact right answer yet. We're getting closer. We think we're getting closer every you know, every year and as more studies are published, but it's challenging to do nutrition stuff. Mm -hmm. So like, let's just start with where your child is now, what your goals are. I think that's the most important thing. You've said that several times. It's patient-centered. And I think that when someone's first diagnosed, it's really hard to digest everything that everybody's telling them. So I have been, I try and be very thoughtful when it comes to starting like I try not to start out with like there is no diet because I think they listen I used to say (laughs) and then I'd explain all this other stuff like but and I think that sometimes you stop at the but because you've had so much information before that there's only so much bandwidth and so I've had people say like well you never told me that like I I thought that I did but I probably didn't deliver it correctly so note to self I need to continually work on how to introduce this to families. Yes. We typically, I'm in, you know, outpatient. So we actually see patients separately of the physician. So by the time they get to us, they have already received the diagnosis. They usually two to three weeks prior. So they've had time to digest that as well as do a little bit of research. And as we all know, you know, there's a lot of resources out yeah. there, whether they're accurate or not is, different story. But so usually when they come in, sometimes they're already on medications, sometimes they're not, and they already have made up their mind and discussed with the physician that they want to try nutrition therapy. And sometimes they're totally clueless. But Mm -hmm. I agree with you, Kim, I think that we're doing a disservice if we don't at least let them know what those options are so that even if they're not a great candidate right now, like, you know, like you mentioned, they're a very picky eater. So putting them on something like SCD, it's not going to be a good option for them. They're not going to be able to, you know, probably do it successfully. So in those cases, you know, I, I just like to at least introduce the concepts and let them know that in the future, if, mm-hmm. you know, medication isn't working as well as we would like to see it work, then they could discuss these options at that time. If, the child may be a better candidate then. So I just think it's good for them to know that they are out there so that they can be an informed decision maker in the future if need be. And your patients are so fortunate. You know, you guys, they have access to you. And do you feel that your physician team is also very supportive or who usually introduces the idea of nutrition therapy where you guys are at? It depends on our physicians. So I've got 18 physicians that I work oh, wow. with. Sometimes some of them are really great about introducing it just when they are talking about the diagnosis to the families, yeah. but others, you know, and, and it probably has a lot to do with how severe the disease is as well, yep. you know, whether or not they're going to even broach the subject mm-hmm. of nutrition as well as the family themselves. You know, if you've got a family that's really apprehensive about medications, but the physician knows they're child probably isn't a great candidate or they're, you know, a a really sick patient, 
then they may not bring up nutrition at that visit because they just need to get them on, you know, on something. Mm -hmm. And so Kim, the title of, we've been talking a lot about nutrition and IBD in general and kind of generalities of the, of the different diets that are out there. But this episode we have in the Mm -hmm. title SCD or specific carbohydrate diet. And, you know, we plan to have other episodes, which this episode could probably have four or five parts, honestly, but (laughs) we plan to have different episodes kind of focusing on the different diets. But I, I know that you are not limited to using SCD, but I feel like you have a lot of knowledge and experience with SCD. So can you tell us what SCD is and how you got involved in this diet in particular mm-hmm. during your career? Definitely. Um, so the first part, what is the SCD? The SCD is the specific carbohydrate diet. And like many of the nutrition therapies researched, it's a whole foods-based elimination diet. So using and emphasizing food in its most basic form without a lot of processing. And it also emphasizes fermented foods while avoiding foods and specific food components and food additives that may be linked to inflammation or dysbiosis. So that's a very common theme with kind of all the elimination diets that have been researched right now. And yes, you're correct. The SCD is one of the evidence-based tools I use, but it's definitely not the only one. And in fact, more and more, I'm, I've been using others, but it still has a place and, and time. And I got involved in research on the SCD at Seattle Children's Hospital after numerous patients, you know, for, for several years had asked us to research the diet. I had an amazing physician team that said, yep, we're going to research it. And, you know, as dietitians. Our goal is to expand the diet for those that we see and to get them to a quality of life that's enjoyable, right? We love food. We love that aspect of food. And I knew that the SCD needed evidence and it needed our dietitian support to really see if it could be nutritionally complete, if it could be sustainable, and if it could truly work as a treatment option. So this seemed like a very comfortable place to say yes and, and kind of get the research going. And So I did jumped in, said yes, and I haven't turned back. I love nutrition research. That's really great. And I think that what is a challenge is that nutrition research inherently has challenges, especially with a diet such as the specific carbohydrate Mm -hmm. diet, just doing it the same for every, you know, every patient doing it. It's very different than taking a pill, right? Or taking a medication, which like it's very black and white and there are nuances to diet for sure. And Sometimes I think there is something to be said about seeing an impact in, in nutrition research, mm-hmm. given that everyone may have a little nuance to it if you're not getting meals provided to yes. you. So if it's still impactful, even though there might be people using a little bit of different brands yep. and doing it to the best of their knowledge, the average person who gets the same education in all the regions of right. the world, hopefully they can also find that same yes. evidence for themselves. So. I feel like for SCD, what sometimes is challenging for me is that the literature isn't as robust. There are case studies, small numbers of participants. Not that that's not useful, but what are your thoughts on on that limitation of SCD? Yeah, this is very true and real. And the reason why I think we don't see as much physician buy-in for using it, you know, it feels a little more like, okay, we're pulling this out of a hat. There is a growing body of evidence, but kind of like you mentioned, Jen, just nutrition research in general is so hard and not exact 
any research is hard, but really to make it, sure, you know, the same. And we know IBD is not the same in everyone. Everyone's IBD. Right, is so right. Different. Yeah. So you're working with patients who have different, may have different disease courses, and then they're trying to follow exactly, a diet. Exactly. And they have different support. That, that's interpretation yeah, to it. Interpretation <laughs> support like at home. So we do need those high powered randomized control trials. I always say just because the research isn't there doesn't mean that we need to make it. You know, we need to keep pushing, pushing the envelope forward. And it doesn't mean that it doesn't work necessarily, but the research just isn't yeah. there. That's what led us to do one of the studies at Mass Center on SCDs. We had people coming in that were doing it on their own and being successful. Yeah. And I think for a time, it was kind of the only kid it on was. the block almost. You it know, was. I feel like other yeah. than yeah. exclusive enteral nutrition. So it was one of the few food-based diets that I think our patients had known about or yep. heard about. And a lot has changed over the last few years, but I feel like does does the research in SCD Kim influence your decision using it, yeah. or does that not influence it as much? And it's more of where the patient is, what they can do, what their goals are, because some of the diets are are different, and so I feel like for certain yeah. people, you know, maybe including more starches in their diet is something that they would find as a benefit to them. And so you might lean one way, but if there are other people that are like, you know what, I'm really I want to avoid X, Y, and Z. Tell me what so you think does, about that. You know, the research, kind of like you mentioned, we, we do need more. And we really need to look at mucosal healing as well. Like, are we seeing mucosal healing? Just like right. you would with medication, yeah, right. with, with the SCD. And this is true for other nutrition therapies as well, like the AIP, the autoimmune protocol, and the IBD aid. We need more research on those right. as well. But we know there is robust evidence behind some other nutrition therapies like exclusive enteral nutrition that we talked about. And there are a few randomized control trials on the Crohn's disease exclusion diet. And it's great. And they are really looking at, you know, in the last five, six years, pediatric IBD and adults and they're right. looking yeah, at it's complex disease. So they're really keen. And, and now yeah. there's a study in, in process on, I believe, those with pouches using the CDED. So super exciting. Oh, yeah, we don't want to leave those UC no, patients out. I feel like sometimes I'm very limited we, with them. Yeah. You know, And I've had a few UC patients that have done SCD successfully yes. and it has worked yes, for them. So, yes, for our listeners, I think that's key. Like, while, you know, the research isn't there, we've all used it in practice and we've seen success. So I, yeah. that's why it's hard to say black and white. It's like, this is the ideal patient, but we've, you know, I'll talk the produce study, which you guys were involved with, also looked at patients and we saw success with some patients. So that's where the family. I think as long as you're thinking about it in the same parameter that you would with medication, just like you mentioned earlier, that we can be objective when the objective measure should be with, you know, their medical side, but also with just their quality of life, making sure that there's no malnutrition or holes in their diet, making sure that they're meeting their goals while meeting the child's needs. Kim, for when you are seeing someone for SCD, do you have them do any prep work ahead of time? Do you give them any materials to look over or tell them, you know, maybe try some of these foods, that sort of thing? Absolutely. So I'll kind of do two hats. Right now in private practice, usually I have like a preliminary discovery call just to see where we're going. You know, I'm looking at those four components that I talked about earlier to see what would be the best Mm -hmm. fit because they may come in with an idea, but maybe they haven't heard about the IBD aid. You know, I'm seeing my expertise in pediatrics, but I also see adults now too, which has been such a, such a privilege to be able to really 
meet with adult patients who don't have access to a dietitian at their institution and who want to know more about nutrition. So I, in that call, I may have them hone in on something and then I get them in quickly to see them so we can start transitioning. In clinic, I would always say, give yourself a couple weeks, then come back and see me so that we can, you can try some of these new foods. There's a transition period to learn new ways of cooking, how to cook new meals and work with new food components. And then what you need to restock your pantry. And I'm, I hate waste. I hate food waste. So I'm like, don't go throw away everything. Just use it up. Use it up. <laughs> That's such a great point, Kim. I don't think I have a timeline that I, or it's okay if it takes this yeah. amount of time. You know, I feel like people want to jump on things right away. And you're right. I love the idea of not having food waste. I've never thought of that. I can't believe oh, I've never thought when they're like, we threw out. Use it up and then buy better. Yeah, we you know, yeah. everything. Safe yeah, and I have a, I have a free yeah. handout on my website that's for like an SCD pantry because some people are like, what are the staples I need? <laughs> you know, to begin yeah, that's, with. So that's I encourage wonderful. them to go there, download some of my favorite brands, get those, and then transition. And I do try and encourage them to transition over two to three weeks. I think that's great and ideal. But what if someone's doing it? Well, I guess if someone's doing it for a soul induction, they may have more mild exactly. disease. So I guess having that conversation about the exactly. urgency of yep. treatment. Yeah. So, okay. I've had some patients that, you know, I, I see them in a month and they're like, oh, well, we're still working exactly. on it. And I have to say, no, 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 no. You opted not to do medication. This is your medication. So while you can transition, you cannot take four months. Yep to transition because your child doesn't like anything and you're trying to figure out. That means they're probably not a good candidate. Exactly. exactly. That's key. And know? I think letting families know, like, yeah. it's okay. It's okay it's, if they're not a good candidate right. because I do have if what feels like guilt yeah. families coming. You know, I, we want to do everything possible, but if it's not a good fit, I feel like it's, it's well, important for us to yeah. let people know that's okay. Yeah. And you also have some parents that are pushing it, but the child doesn't want to do it. Teenagers. And yeah. it's just not going to work with the child. Yeah. If they're not on, on board, are you finding, Kim, you mentioned working with adults. I'm just curious if you're finding that the adult GIs are as supportive of diet therapy as, you know, our pediatric GIs. For the most part, they are not there. Yeah. That's what I find as well. Yeah. You know, 15 years ago in pediatrics, we're still, and patients are, are craving to know that what's the evidence. They are. Um, so I think, yeah. you know, we are the, I always say I'm the, the voice of reason, the, hey, you're going too yeah. far, you're going over the edge with this, we need yeah. to re- re- rein it in, you know, for those families that are like, oh my gosh, I have so much guilt attached to this. Yeah. It's like, nope, if you yeah. missed a medication dose, you're going to say, oops, and then get back on board tomorrow. And that's what I say with yeah, with diet is, is really trying to have grace for yourself and and acknowledge, hey, if it isn't working, whether from a lab standpoint or quality of life standpoint, then we're going to reevaluate. And I'm really upfront with families at the beginning, like about, hey, this is what it can look like, but, you know, we'll give it three months. Or if, if they really just don't like the foods and it's miserable for your child, then we'll reevaluate. And, you know, in private practice, I can now say that upfront with them and then our next visit transition. But in clinic, it was Sometimes I would see those families that, you know, they're two months in now and they haven't fully transitioned to the diet. So (laughs) that's exactly like you said, Bailey, having that conversation of, okay, this is your therapy. So what are we going to do? What is a reasonable time for them to transition fully to SCD? Yeah, I 
I give them, like I said, kind of two weeks to transition from their pantry, try new foods. And then I say, okay, over the course of a month, the learning curve, it's uphill. You're going to feel like you're going uphill. And I really feel like by a month in, you're going to say, okay, I've got this. It's not so overwhelming. And then by six months, they're teaching me. You know, I say they're the experts. They're (laughs) teaching me. So that's the goal. And I, you know, I can see some of them for a year, which is pretty, pretty neat too. So I can, you know, if any flares happen, we talk, what do I do about diet and a flare? You know, what do we do when I'm feeling well, that long term? What do you do at the first meeting when they're again, like specifically for SCD, when they're there, you've already determined they're a good candidate. Like how long is your first meeting and what do you typically include at that meeting? Great. Yeah. For like our listeners, what do you think is really important for that first meeting? So in my, in my first meetings now, cause I can kind of create my ideal. So if you guys could do this in clinic, this is what I'd recommend an hour and budget or allow for 90 minute visit for the first, especially if a family has done their own digging, they have questions that need to be answered. And I really set the stage for what we'll talk about in our first visit. What we're going to talk about, you know, third visit, we're going to talk about supplements and and diet analysis. And that's not as possible in the clinic, in clinical settings to have an hour. I know adult dietitians, you know, get what, 30 minutes maybe. So this really depends on where the family's at with their prep and their knowledge about the diet. So let's take the situation, you know, that this, and this is true for any nutrition therapy, whether it's SCD or not. If they're starting for, sure. from square one, I prioritize education on what the diet includes and what it avoids. And the why behind these avoidances, I think, is key for them to remember and to understand. So really saying, do you understand it? We might not go over every single detail on this because they're going to have questions no matter what. You know, what about flaxseed? What about hemp seed? You know, the lists are not exhaustive by any means. So yeah. that's where kind of the experience comes in of, of talking about some of those foods as you go. I really focus on food labels for those that maybe aren't as familiar looking at how to read a food label. What is a food additive? What is the processed foods? And then I really do this, especially for kids. Like we can start as early as, you know, five or six basic nutrition education. And then we, for those that are older, they can be a lot more involved in this process. And we know with IBD, like this loss of control is so hard for kids. So how can I give them control back through education? So we go over food labels. And if the kids there, ideally, I really focus on that with them. And then we dig into recipes and their questions. And I always leave them with resources to go for more information, you know, because questions after kind of it sits, this whole change sits of what, how am I going to change my life? And eating at home when our schedule is so busy, I give them my main go-to resource now for evidence-based nutrition information is ntforibd.org. I love that website. Yes, and it's, yeah. it's an amazing site and I'm so thankful it's there. And the medical board mm-hmm. is amazing. So I, I, that's where I refer them to and we briefly go over how to navigate that site a little bit. I find some people will ask questions, like will send me questions, but many people I feel like probably have questions, yeah. but don't send questions to me. So I love the idea of you giving them places to go look. I mean, they can, I'm sure, always contact you, but I find that if they think of something, you know, late at night or something, you know, then they're going to try yep. and do their, find it out for themselves, which is great. You're yes. learning yourself. And in my situation so. now in private practice, I have messaging built in. So I say, I encourage it. I'm like, message me if you're doubting. Like, I just want to put yeah, your mind absolutely. at ease. Send me a food label. I wish I could go with you to the grocery yeah. store. 
guide. How often do you follow up with these uh, patients? Yeah, so this would be true for SCD or any nutrition therapy. I've found kind of monitoring as close to what they would do on a medication is ideal. But for nutrition specifically, I see them kind of, you know, for the baseline visit, and this is what we we did a lot of in our research at Seattle Children's as well on the SCD, they would come back in two weeks, and that could be in person or virtual. And we'd have a check-in, you know, how, how are these changes going? Have you transitioned? What's holding mm-hmm. you up? What are the roadblocks and kind of troubleshooting those? And then again, follow-up visit at around four to six weeks. And then four to six weeks after yeah. the two week? No, like into the nutrition okay. therapy. Yeah. Oh, got so, it. Okay. So I guess week four to six and then kind of that yep. two month mark and then week 10 to 12, that three month mark. And that's really where we can see, okay, is this diet working? You know, do you still have symptoms? Where are your labs at? And then from based on that visit, the next follow-up would kind of depend. And then leading into that, Kim, we haven't mentioned this yet, but what are your thoughts on a modified SCD? Can you just briefly describe what that is? And is that 12-week mark a time that you introduced that idea or tell yeah, me your so thoughts on that? The, the modified SCD was derived from the SCD, kind of like the IBD aid, with the addition of a few select foods that we had had success adding in for patients. And it was created for the produce study that was published about a year ago. Mm -hmm. And you guys are familiar with that study, but I think your sites were involved in this study, and which is amazing. It was a multi-center study. And we wanted to really see if we could if we needed to be as rigorous starting with the SCD or if we could start with a modified SCD for kids. And in the study, participants were randomized into one of two diets, so the SCD or the modified SCD, on an eight-week sequence. So they would go onto one diet arm for eight weeks, and then they would automatically transition. It's a really cool study design. Mm-hmm. I had not been familiar with the end of one study. It's amazing. Yeah, it's really cool. and everyone is their own you know, experiment. <laughs> and they're kind of their own control. You're comparing it to themselves. And then from that, we can aggregate the data to really look at the group as a whole. Since IBD is so unique, results from the produce study showed that most participants did not have clinically meaningful differences between the SCD and a modified. Some did show, it wasn't statistically significant, right? Some did show improvement. So I usually leave this up to the patient, honestly, unless I feel strongly about it. Most still want to okay. do SCD and then expand at about three months. But I find that mm-hmm. ultimately very few will truly stay on the SCD. The, yeah, traditional, the traditional SCD as we call it. Yep. Most are going to expand and we have, we have evidence from the CDED or the IBD aid, you know, of we have clues of what other foods they could expand to. I think clues are a nice word to yeah. say. And I guess that leads to my next question of like, what are your thoughts on, on, modifying beyond modified SCD. So more of that personalization where it's a one-on-one case-by-case decision on adding additional foods over time. So I think it's a good option and we, this is the most sustainable option, right? The goal is that we have a way of eating because I don't think of it as a diet. We have to think of it as a way of eating long-term. That's beneficial for the whole family, whether or not they have IBD. Like this way of eating is going to be more of a lifestyle. Um, one of our physicians said this, and I was like, I, I love this. We we want to see the most amount of benefit with the least amount of restriction. Yes. And so if we, we think about that moving forward. Yes, and, and I, you know, a research nerd, I love digging into the nitty gritty nuances of what about gluten? What about dairy? And that's what I published on my blogs for people to, to really look at. We There are foods that do not have strong evidence that we just don't know 
they haven't been researched. But we do know that there are food components that are really beneficial for especially the gut microbiome. So I really love the IBD aid because I feel like it captures this concept of adding in foods based on the research, you know, kind of the general recommendation for most adult GIs too that I, I hear from patients will say, yep, you can do a Mediterranean diet, but I struggle with the Mediterranean diet because it's not well-defined. And, and we know yeah. it's, I feel like right. it's pretty nebulous. So I love the IBD aid as more of a sustainable long-term option. Oh, that's good. Yeah, yeah. It captures, and I find people, you know, you can add fermented foods. I love the focus on the essential eight. The downside is there's no research in in pediatrics, but it's just not there again, (laughs) you know. And in the uh, research in adults with IBD-8, I know we're getting a little (laughs) off of our SED topic. Is there research on the diet itself or is it the the theory behind how the diet was put together? Is there more research on those individual components, not putting the diet together? Yes, it's more about the components of the diet. And it's been, they really yeah. focused, which is amazing, on pregnant women. Yeah, oh, the IBD okay. aid. Okay. So we need research. Okay, your institution, yes. let's partner with UMass, Barbara Olinsky <laughs> for, for research on IBD aid. But yeah, it's an expanded version of the SCD with up-to-date research. And that's, you know, I feel like most patients feel that is sustainable for them and easier to follow than a Mediterranean yeah. diet, which is a little okay. more vague. And we know that the Mediterranean diet is, is very different depending on where you live in the Mediterranean. So. Yeah, yeah. Did that answer the question? That was like a wordy tangent. Sorry. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. You've answered all and of our questions some. so well. <laughs> I was like, I could just go on and on about this. guys. We're just rapid fire questioning Kim today. So Kim. What do you think is one of the keys or, you know, maybe the most significant key to long-term success on oh, SCD? I've, that's hard. Okay. It is hard. And, it, and maybe there's no, not a great three. answer to that. So maybe just kind yeah, of answer that I was like, I kind of think of three off the, off the top of my head. Yep. Support, your support system. Do you have a family who's cooking with you, cooking for you? The families that I can think of that do this really well, they're all, they're in, all in. Family. They're all, all yep. in. Yeah. And maybe they're not all eating it, but they're all in to support the yep. family member yep. and, yep. you know, and sponsoring nights where people can come over exactly. and try their foods. It introduces everyone to a new way of eating, you know, new ingredients. And yeah. It can be delicious. The second thing I think yeah. of is enjoyment. So truly those that do it yeah. long term enjoy it. And I think the third that is probably the most important is maybe answering your question, improved quality of life. If you don't see improved quality mm-hmm. of life, through symptoms, inflammation, and overall enjoyment of the diet long-term, then it doesn't really work. I do feel like that's a little limiting in patients that have mild disease that may not be presenting with many GI symptoms if I have some that just present with growth failure. And so for them to choose a rigid diet, I think that you don't get that feedback from the body that's saying this is the right thing for me. So I think that you know, you just have yep. those conversations. You know, what do you what do you need to f- to feel good about doing this diet, and if you you know if that's important. Yeah, or we start maybe with the IBD eight. You especially with those with mild disease, I would say, hey, let's take just like that physician said. I loved it, Jen, that you work with the least restrictive, the maximum benefit. Maybe we start with IBD eight because you know they're not in the hospital; they're really doing well, and we can look at the markers to see how they're responding and reevaluate. I always say therapy works only if it treats inflammation, symptoms, and improves quality of life. So whether that's medication or diet. I remember when I was at the the SED conference at Seattle Children's and you were speaking, y'all had a a patient panel Mm -hmm. and they were all different ages of children. And the youngest one 
said that he had figured out how to make all of his favorite foods SCD safe, including he said, you can even make marshmallows SCD safe. So like whenever I meet with families that are going to utilize diet, always, you know, the pre-planning, you know, looking at their recipes and seeing how they can adjust them so that the child doesn't feel like they're missing out. That enthusiasm, I think is so important. It it doesn't, you, you have to present it in a way of these are all the foods that are part of this diet. And I think I learned that from you, Kim, when we first started talking together about SCD. And and I think that that makes a huge difference. And I was at a conference, it was similar, Bailey, with a patient panel. And one of the Mm -hmm. patients was saying that, and I don't know if this is recommended, but she learned how to make the yogurt on her like computer tower, (laughs) the heat off of her computer tower. Cool. That is like, in a dorm oh. room where you wouldn't think you'd be able to do something I'm like that's so innovative. And she was so excited to like say, like, this is what I did. This is uh, that was next level. And those are like when we're celebrating <laughs> and dancing up and down. I think, yes. yeah, maybe I would add to what yes. was ingenuity or like I said, that flexibility of and an abundant mindset is really key of like, hey, I can make something else taste good. It, how, How can I, I solve this it? problem and not be sad with where yeah. I was missing? And we do acknowledge yeah. the sad. That's very real. Yeah. You know, with there are lots of losses yeah, right. with IBD and we can still turn lemons into lemonade, you know, so really working right. towards yeah. that and holding the space for the, the sad is very real. We could go on and on yeah. about those too. <laughs> so Kim, what do you suggest is important for someone following a rigid diet in order to prevent maladaptive food behaviors and thoughts? Oh, this question is so important. And I do have an in-depth blog post on this topic on my website for more details because it's so important. And I know in the healthcare field, you know, we're really looking at, at this as well. And I feel like, you know, I was, before I did research, I felt very uncomfortable with a restrictive diet. And now I've learned that there is not one size that fits all. And for some families, nutrition therapy, again, if it improves quality of life and treats the disease is the best option. So I try not to limit a family at all. I very much keep an open mind. But for our listeners who have access, this is the hardest part, meeting with a trained IBD dietitian and mental health provider who can support and cancel around food is vital. And I would say the same for those with IBD, you know, who are not on a prescribed diet or going down that road. Diet adaptations like food restriction are normal parts and responses to negative symptoms we see with GI disease. Really having that counsel around foods to eat when feeling well and periods Mm -hmm. of unwell, like how can we prevent restrictions, still keep the diet broad so we're nourishing your body is so important. And having that guidance of when we need to reevaluate therapy options is so crucial too. And I think asking, right? Like asking them, I, yep. how do you feel? Always, definitely. Not, yeah. How do you feel physically? How do you feel mentally? What's challenging? Yes. What's not challenging? Okay. You know, I, and sometimes that's hard with a limited amount of space. But I think, yes, you're right, Kim. Phone your friends, your yep. psychology and social work friends, if, if you have the privilege mm-hmm. to have them embedded yep. into your center where they can dive in on many things. But I think they're extremely important on someone who is on a yeah, therapy. And especially diet. through teenage years. I mean, we just know there's certain stages, yeah. especially like I find 10 and younger, you know, nutrition therapy can be pretty easy. You know, they're more under your yeah, wing. Yeah. Then we get into the teenage years, which are just naturally like head, butt heads, 
Like, so how do we give them yeah. ownership yeah. and part of the decision making? Because at 18, they're adults. Yeah. yeah. I think when someone starts a diet and they do it long term and they cross over one of those yeah. time periods, I yep. think that's those reevaluation where... with medication too, you know, it would be, yeah. be similar. So we know yes. the caveat here is we know access to these resources, dietitian, trained dietitian and mental health provider is a huge barrier and, and efforts are being made to help, but it's, it's slow. But I would say those are some of the keys to preventing kind of these rigid food behaviors for anyone with IBD. And as we're kind of wrapping up our, our show here today, for someone who is, is not interested in following a therapeutic diet for IBD, do you still, I, I, mean, I think I know the answer to this, but, but do you still think that diet has a role in their IBD journey? Yes, absolutely. Uh, yeah, you're right. I think you've gathered from my previous responses that nutrition is an essential part of IBD management. And the key is meeting a patient where they are at. And that's what it's all about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. And Kim, we've so, so enjoyed oh. having you today. And would you do you have any other comments or any other thoughts on nutrition and IBD or SED in particular that you would like to um, to share before we end the show today? Well, it's been an absolute privilege and joy to be chatting with you guys on a topic we're all so passionate about. I could do so many thoughts. We could do, you know, 10 more episodes, but <laughs> yeah, right. And I feel like we could do this meeting every week. We? Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's schedule needs to work together. I think one, one that comes to mind is it's not always black or white and medicine never is. So what I mean kind of by that are nutrition is never going to be black or white for, for someone and kind of being able to ebb and flow mm-hmm. and adapt is really key to, to supporting them from a nutrition standpoint. That's one thought. And then two, patients really deserve to know their treatment options and shared decision-making with their healthcare team is key to finding a nutrition plan that works for that individual. And that's in line with their, their goals of care. I think those are two main thoughts on nutrition and IBD to keep in mind. Wonderful. Very well said. Well, Kim, just like I said before, we have had such a great time with you today talking about nutrition and IBD and, and a little more about the SCD in this episode. So thank you so much for joining us. Yep. And we will hopefully yes. be talking soon. Yeah, it was Thanks, great. Jen. Thanks, Kim. Really appreciate Thanks, it. Jenna Bailey, you're welcome. Talk soon, guys. Oh, that was such a great episode. Kim is so, so knowledgeable. I could have asked her questions for another hour or two or three. I don't know. I could have talked to her all day long. Yes, she was great. I agree. She's such a wealth of knowledge. I would say three takeaways from talking with Kim would be my, my first takeaway would be that it is important to introduce ways nutrition can be a part of treatment for IBD, regardless of whether a patient is a good candidate for a therapeutic diet right at the time of your first meeting. Yeah. So if they, if not all of those little pieces that Kim described, if not all those little pieces fit at the perfect time when you're first meeting them, that you should still kind of introduce it because there might be a time when all of those pieces kind of align, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And then my second takeaway would be adding another takeaway to your first is that it is important as dietitians to let families know that it's okay to take a few weeks to transition to a diet like SCD. And they don't necessarily need to throw out all the food that they have, but they can take time to learn about the diet, add new foods to their pantries and try recipes. And it's also important to know that that transition though should be finite and not like 
months, you know, give, give you some time, but there should be like, okay, you got two weeks. And if you're struggling at two weeks, like let's, let's talk and kind of figure out how we can either move on to something else or finish that transition. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, you know, Kim saying that she usually would do that two week follow up. That's a good time to, to see how the family's doing and whether or not they've been able to, to already make that transition and can at that two week mark be hundred percent SCD at that point. Yeah. My third takeaway would just be resources, um, resources, resources, and right. more resources. So it's great that, uh, families have, you know, knowledgeable dietitians to help them with the transition and the initial education, but you know, they need to have, resources at their fingertips for, you know, any other questions that may come up that they may not want to send you an email to ask. So, you know, some of the websites and handouts are are great for these families. And I think they they really appreciate the more, the better. (laughs) Yes, I agree. And I, I feel that in my own practice, but she really you know, brought that home with kind of talking about those things with her patients. So in the spirit of resources, we will drop the information in our bio for our listeners, including Kim's website, kimbrollyrd.com and eatsforibd.com. Also, we will add ntforibd.org and crohnscolitisfoundation.org. If you don't already, please consider following the show. We will announce upcoming episodes on the CPNP social media accounts, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you are a CPNP member and have a topic idea, feel free to email us at cpnp at naspigan.org. The information discussed during these episodes is subject to change over time with new developments and advances in the field of medical nutrition therapy. Thanks everyone for listening. Bye. Bye.